When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the College Football Survivor Show, where playoff survival is always on the line. Here's Shahan Jehuraja and Babak Hayeri. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the College Football Survivor Show, where we go deep into the season's contenders for the college football playoff. I'm Bob Akhairi, and I'm joined, as always, by Shahan Jehiraja, National College Football Writer for CBS Sports. As always, you can find us on X at CFB Survivor Show, where you can participate in polls, send us feedback. We always appreciate it when you take a moment to write us there or like, rate, and subscribe our show wherever you get your podcasts. Reviews on places like Apple Podcasts always help people find this show, and we appreciate all of that feedback. Now, saying that, we've now had the third college football playoff rankings, just to kind of quickly roll through it. Uh, Georgia is now number one, Ohio State, Michigan, Florida State, Washington, Oregon, Texas, Alabama. Mizzou has now fallen only to number nine as a two-loss team ahead of one-loss Louisville, Oregon State, Penn State, Ole Miss, Oklahoma, LSU, Iowa, Arizona, Tennessee, Notre Dame, North Carolina, Kansas State, Utah, Oklahoma State, Tulane as the sacrificial G5 that is now in the back, almost the entire back. And finally, the Kansas Jayhawks. What are your thoughts just on what we've seen so far? Not a whole lot of shockers, but I'd, I'd love to get your thoughts on this, Shehan. Yeah, so obviously Georgia jumping to number one. I think that's the right decision at this point. Obviously, we saw what they did against Ole Miss last week, and the committee still likes Ole Miss. They have them at number 13. So to dominate Ole Miss 52 to 17 like they did I think was pretty impressive a a point that I've made is that I think that Georgia has very openly and actively dominated every matchup that like it kind of like against the top opponent right you see them play Kentucky earlier in the year their first ranked game 51 to 13 Missouri actually you know them being a top 10 team I think makes a lot of sense uh, after what we've seen from them it was only a 30 to 21 win but obviously one that Georgia was able to pull away from now you see them last week against Ole Miss 52 to 17 it was 43 to 20 against Florida I I mean they're an impressive team right now I think that they're finally starting to add the wins Uh, to give them the credibility to be number one, which was obviously one of the big issues with them heading into last week. Now they've got, uh, you know, two top 15 victories, uh, you know, a a top 30 to 40 type victory over Kentucky, a top 40 to 50 type victory over Florida. So they have the resume now. I think that matches what we've seen from them all year. Uh, I was a little surprised that Louisville, uh, stayed or fell behind Missouri. Not hugely surprised, but I mean, it is certainly an unusual one, but Louisville jumps into the top 10, which I think is something that makes a lot of sense. I was curious to kind of see, you know, because one that's been interesting to me is I feel like the conversation around Washington is very interesting because I think that we all have acknowledged the fact that Washington hasn't played its best football since that Oregon game. But they've won a lot of good games. I mean, they beat Utah this past week, and obviously that's a significant win. They have the win over Oregon, which is one of the best wins in the entire country this season. They've got a win over Arizona that's aging very well. They have a win over USC that uh, is still pretty good. And for them to kind of not really even be in contention with the wins that Michigan has, to not be in contention with the wins that Florida State has, It's a little surprising to me. Nothing crazy. I don't think it's wrong necessarily, but I was curious to see if we'd get a little more conversation about that. But uh, more of the conversation seems to be focused on whether Oregon should jump Washington than whether Washington's win should kind of count for them. Yeah, I agree. It was interesting to, I know that Boo Corrigan was asked, you know, why is Florida, if you're, if we're looking at record and who teams have beat Florida state's loss, pardon me, wins have kind of degraded with time. LSU is probably still the strongest victory they have. And even LSU, you know, they're fine, but it's not it's not a college football playoff contender that they were at the beginning. 
And then it, it was really funny because I remember it was with Ohio, keeping Ohio State last week above Georgia. They're like, well, Rutgers defense is really good. This year we heard, you know, or for me this week we heard, you know, Miami is is a rival team. So, you know, they they uh, they play really close, um, you know, and it, it just feels like a way of legitimizing it for the very reason, despite the fact that overall Washington's wins have at least been against stronger competition. And it kind of feeds into an, another larger thought I had um, with Florida State really needs Louisville to keep doing well. I mean, they need Louisville to win out because they, I think when push comes to shove, they need us the strongest possible opponent in the ACC title game uh, to a lesser extent. So, I mean, Louisville, we've talked about, they're like the ultimate dark horse. They still theoretically with a lot of chaos could make it in. I mean, incredibly, you could say there is, I mean, we've seen crazier things in college football and they would similarly need Florida state to be really strong. They both need each other desperately because they're, they will be probably the strongest victory for either team. Uh, if they both make it to the ACC title game and, and, Either team wins out. Their only chance is going to be beating each other. Because I'm very curious. I think we're going to get, I don't know if I think how many upsets are actually going to happen in the next few weeks. I'm actually thinking if things go the way they are, we're still going to get at least one fan base, conference, team, whatever, however you want to slice it, really deeply upset at being let out, uh, left out of the uh, 14 playoff this year because they're going to have a legitimate reason to be uh, upset about it. I've been going back to, Gosh, you know, uh, uh, 2000, um, 2004, was it 2004, 2005 season where Auburn was undefeated and they got yeah, left that out was of the Yeah, 2004, right. You know, I mean, we're, I'm, I'm wondering if we're going to get that except with the five te- with the four teams and so there's a fifth team, which is actually in a way, as I keep saying, I am kind of also in a weird way hoping for something like that. I don't care which team. I'm not like biased against any team, only because it will set up the, the reason why we have this 12-team playoff and why so many of us have been and I'm one of those strong advocates for having this this inclusive playoff because it, it allows more teams and allows more opportunities and frankly will encourage more not I think out of conference play that is going to be interesting matchups. I mean this whole Texas Alabama thing has been one of the more other interesting stories too because I mean if Alabama manages to win out and beats Georgia and Texas manages to win out even though Texas has looked perhaps weaker in this stretch then Alabama, they're still going to have the head-to-head. And then I think I've agreed with some of the logic that the committee is going to be kind of obligated to almost put Texas ahead only because they've made such a big deal about valuing head-to-head and valuing those big matchups. But that's a whole other conversation. I don't want to to drag this whole thing there. You know, the other thought I had was, man, does this committee like Iowa? <laughs> they, they have pushed <laughs> them up to 16. I don't know if it's because they fired um, uh, Brian Ferentz or, you know, I'm not entirely sure what's going on there besides the fact that this seems like a little bit of quiet politicking in the latter half of the rankings to try and legitimize that eventual Big Ten championship game versus whoever, you know, we got out of Michigan and Ohio State. But it, I it feels a little high and it feels for purposes that are, are a little bit beyond what they actually think of Iowa in so much as what they think of the Big Ten. Well, I think the funny thing is you look at the rankings and typically among the power teams, it's all the zero loss teams. It's all the one loss teams with minor exceptions. Missouri ahead of Louisville, like we mentioned. Uh, and I was actually grouped with the three loss teams right there. They're one behind LSU. They're one ahead of Arizona. I would have Iowa certainly behind even some of these three loss teams. Uh, North Carolina, another one. They're a two loss team, but they're grouped with the three loss teams. Obviously, they haven't played their best football the past couple of weeks and probably should have lost to Duke over the weekend. There was a controversial uh, interception that was that was called back and that ultimately allowed them to force overtime and ultimately win the game. And they have some bad losses, Virginia and Georgia tech, two of the worst losses in the country this year, of course. Uh, But, you know, I think that, uh, and by the way, some news coming down right now, actually, two four seven is reporting that Cooper Dijon, the the star Iowa cornerback, is actually going to be out the remainder of the year. So it's going to be very, very difficult for them to be able to uh, to compete if they make it to the Big Ten title game against a Michigan or an Ohio State. They have some interesting games left. I, I mean, it's it's Illinois and it's at Nebraska over the mm-hmm. next two weeks. So those should be uh, games that they can win without him, but. I think that if we were thinking of the Big Ten title game as a place where an upset could happen, maybe that hurts that a little bit. 
It always feels, I know we were talking before the show, the Big Ten title game really just feels like a theoretical upset situation, not one that that feels as practical. I mean, yeah, sure, North Alabama could theoretically upset, you know, what is it, Florida State? You know, I, I, they, they theoretically could, but no, no, almost this isn't This does not look like that kind of a circumstance. Um, you know, one last comment I wanted to make. Tulane fell a spot uh, from 23 to 24, which feels about right. They had another kind of unconvincing win, this time against a fairly bad Tulsa team. And that was after barely scraping by another bad East Carolina team. I don't think they're going to really move from there. The The only games they have left are at, you know, probably with FAU and UTSA plus the uh, the American title game or America's team. Sorry, uh, Mr. Harbaugh, but uh, <laughs> you know, America's team would be theoretically the winner of the American title game. But um the uh, I, I don't this is this has been one of the we, we've talked about before, but this has been one of the weakest years for the G5 and Tulane right now is the leading candidate seemingly tenuously by the by the their fingernails they are holding on. And yet I don't know who's ready to leap them. I think it's going to be two lanes to lose. But at this point, I don't even I mean, because obviously Fresno State had another loss and it looks like we're just basically seeing how this is going to shake out. The New Year's Six uh, spot for the G5 has been a bit of a disappointing race this year. But in exchange, we've had one of the best races for the top with the college football playoff. And, and I guess that's the trade-off. That was, you know, that was, <laughs> that was the, the deal with the devil we got. So uh, well, I guess we'll take that for now. I, I will say, I will say, uh, obviously, you know, we only rank 25 of these teams. I would be very curious if we were to extend this to 30 or 35, just how far the other group of five contenders are, because we have a 10 and one Toledo now after they won this week. Uh, we've got, of course, a nine and oh Liberty at this point. We've got, I believe it's an eight and one Fresno State. So like there are teams that absolutely could be in position to jump if Tulane were to lose a game. Unfortunately, with the way that the rankings have worked out, Tulane is the only one that we see on the board. So we don't really know in the committee's mind how far away these other teams are. But I do expect to see potentially Toledo get into the AP top 25. I do think that we could see Fresno State. I do think, uh, you know, obviously, you know, we're waiting on the James Madison waiver, which could come down uh, maybe even by the time that you're listening to this show on Thursday. But, uh, you know, so so things could get a little bit more interesting, but it's kind of hard to place it right now in a ranking of 25 by the committee. Absolutely. And I'm just going to, I'm just, because I respect our fans who might be listening from Liberty, you're at 10 and 0 right now. Um, just giving you that extra win. But again, against two, <laughs> you know, we'll see where that goes. You know, before we move on, I wanted to just take a couple of seconds and I was talking and I'm going to ask you all to indulge me because my background is I, I do teach a little bit of law and I'm a lawyer by training. Um, there's a lot of conversation going around about what's going on in the PAC 12, because there's this whole lawsuit and it's fun. It's it's unique. That's number one. It's a very unique situation with this breakup of the Pac-12 impending. There has been a real fight between the two, the Pac-2, however you want to put it, the Tupac. I always love that one. But the remaining two teams, Oregon State and Washington State, really want to make sure they have control of the board. And they are concerned that the board of uh, the board that runs the Pac-12 could potentially make decisions where the 10 teams that are leaving are going to make uh, vote for policies that would negatively affect them. So in that, they have gone to court saying that the bylaws of the PAC-12 should be interpreted to say that only they can vote on board business. And they strategically filed the case in, <laughs> um, I always forget the name of the county, in uh, yeah, I think it's Wh Whitman, Whitman County. County, Whitman County, which is the Palouse, where Wazoo is located. So in this fairly rural, to be safe, rural county. And that judge has been amenable to it. So they first asked for, and we talked about this very briefly in the last show, when we were talking about what's going on with Michigan. They filed a temporary restraining order where you can just file it. The other side doesn't even necessarily have to reply, although I think they were able to get in time to reply on that. And they judge agreed that they think this could be damaging to Oregon, this is back on September 11th, but that Oregon State and Wazoo could be damaged in this circumstance. And then the big news, at least um, legally yesterday, was that they went on to grant the same judge has granted a preliminary um, injunction. So a stronger version of the same thing, basically saying that in his mind, in this specific judge's mind, that the arguments being made by Oregon State and Wazoo seem like they should be able to 
win in a court of law were they to move forward. And they believe he believes that they would suffer irreparable harm without such an injunction. So I'm just setting all of that up. All of it sounds so interesting. Lots of legal words, lots of scary things. It seems like lots of stakes. Some people have been running with it saying like, oh, wow, now Oregon State and Wazoo are going to be able to take $400 million and just pocket it. All I have to say is, dear Lord, please slow down. Characterizing this, some people are characterizing this as a huge win. And I keep hearing big win, big win. That gives me a big eye roll because if this works right, almost nothing will change. That's actually the entire point of all of this. Oregon State and Wazoo were just scared that the other 10 teams were going to start doing votes that were going to negatively affect them. And here's the, the long view on that. If they did do that, it would still turn into a lawsuit. It would just involve Oregon State and Wazoo trying to claw money back from the other 10 teams. That still happens. I mean, now instead, it's kind of like a uh, not trusting the other side. There's a lot of paranoia here. Now, theoretically, and this has been the counter argument now from the other 10 teams, they're now afraid Oregon State and Wazoo could do the reverse. They could they could unfairly take money that is owed to all 12 teams and take more of it for themselves. So in a way, it's kind of like, it's easier to to keep hold on to the money and then be forced to give it to the other side rather than the other side takes it and you're forced to kind of sue them for it. There's a lot at stake here and are easily you could argue that Oregon State and Wazoo would be the more the more harm party if they were the ones stuck because they're the ones that are kind of left out in the wilderness while the other 10 teams are going to go collect new paychecks from other conferences. But ultimately, I mean, this is this is just a situation where um I think the, the ideas going on have, have made it more attractive because ultimately a board member has to be a fiduciary. You have to act in the interest of every member of your board. So they no one here. I and mean, the judge warned Oregon State and Wazoo, if I get a sense that you're not treating the other 10 teams fairly, I'm going to rip all of this apart. Basically, I will go after you. You will not be permitted to move forward. And what makes it even more kind of strange to me is that all of this is at the trial level. And this is where I also respect that a lot of people don't really appreciate this. This is a trial court judge. And I'm not I'm not in any way saying he's not intelligent or, or qualified to make these kinds of calls. But this is a trial court judge using their best knowledge of this kind of a fight in a rural county where I don't know if he's necessarily dealing with these kinds of issues all the time. I mean, this is a very unique issue. Very I, when, when can you point to another conference getting into this kind of a battle? So he's making his best call. And the problem is, or at least the problem for delaying all of this, is anytime a judge is making a legal decision, when they're not making a decision on the fact, they're making an interpretation of what they think the law should be, that's open for an appeal. And with all the money at stake, $400 million here, and with the 10 teams that can probably wait until they get their chunk, even though they are relying on it, but they can wait a little longer, they're going to appeal this. So I don't know how long this is going to go through the appeals courts. And it's not even clear where if it gets appealed and, for example, if it goes to the Supreme Court of the state, would they have a different interpretation of what's going on here? Would they because sometimes you'll see that the little guy wins and then a larger court. because That's what I teach a lot. The larger court will go like, yeah, but, but wait one second. When we're thinking about this in every board that ever existed, not in sports, but in like charities and and corporate boards, would we ever have allowed them to do the same thing? And they might say like, whoa, so your break. So. I'm just saying I, I had a tar I just I, I, I just had to get that out there. This is a big fight over something that ultimately, if it works, isn't going to make a difference at all. Other than the, the strongest argument I could make for Oregon State and Wazoo, other than the fact that they don't have to worry about necessarily clawing back money is being in charge of a board also means you get to set the agenda of what the board deals with, which means in their minds, hopefully they can start taking actions to figure out what on earth is happening for scheduling for next season. Are they going to come up with some creative method to work with the Mountain West or just absorb teams from the Mountain West? That's what that's setting up. So just wanted to get that out there because it keeps coming up. And I just wanted folks to have a slightly more nuanced take on it and one that might actually not make it sound quite as exciting as it was before. But welcome to our world. Nothing about law is exciting. Except Michigan. They're absolutely entertaining, but I don't want to I don't want to get into that. That that is absolute bonkers town right now. And for lay people, attorneys, legal scholars, it is is a blast. But this one eh, a little dry and it really is drier than it sounds. So so okay. Let's not let's not dwell too much on this, but I do have one follow-up question for our legal expert here. Uh so one question that was kind of posed was 
you know, so for example, 10 of the 12 teams are set to leave the Pac-12. That's that's obviously known. So it would have been in the fiduciary interest of those 10 teams, for example, to start liquidating some assets. Uh, is this ruling something that would protect against that? And if it had gone the other way, would that have been more of a risk, especially for Oregon State and Washington State with things like, uh, like Pac-12 network infrastructure or offices, things like that? Well, certainly there is a fear that when you have 10 teams that have no interest in the long-term survivability of the conference because they're departing, they might make decisions. They might, if not conscientiously, be potentially, you know, uh, unconsciously realizing that they're they're willing to side in directions that would affect negatively affect the two remaining. But they couldn't just go out and do a fire sale and just say, like, hey, we just need to dump all this stuff. We're folding. They can't, they can't move forward and just close the conference and go too far. A lot of this was just based on arguments that they could do that. They could do it. No, at no point has any any of the teams or any of the other 10 teams proposed something that would involve doing those kinds of activities. So that's that's actually where I was kind of trying to say a lot of this is just paranoia. Both sides are paranoid. That and, and the funny thing is, by the way, the other 10 teams can show up to board meetings. They just can't vote. So I'm totally wondering how that's going to be. Are they going to be kind of like, doing these weird kind of like, you know, nodding and smiling or shaking their heads or, you know, screaming Aladdin or something like that. I don't know. That was really, that was a really weird reference to it because <laughs> to, to a Sasha Baron Cohen movie. But, you know, I mean, uh, what, what, I don't even know how it's going to go, um, but it's going to be strange, but boring. And I'm not going to recommend anyone like try to watch a Pac-12 board meeting because if they manage to get one done, it's going to be dry, dry, dry. But that is... Good news is we're not going to have a dry conversation coming up next because we're going to talk a little bit about potential upsets because that's what makes the college football season more exciting. Let's spice it up. Next, we'll talk about some of the potential upsets here on the College Football Survivor Show. The College Football Survivor Show, where playoff survival is always on the line. So as we head into these final weeks of the college football's regular season, we wanted to look at things that could potentially shake up the race to be in the college football playoff. So I think we're going to go through potential upset games. And I'll start with you, Shahan. What do you think would be one of those games that we should look out for? Great question. So the way that I approached this was I came up with a list of five games. And I'm going to start from the bottom of my list. So my number five game. I'm going to go with Louisville versus Kentucky. Obviously a bitter rivalry game. Involving a team that's a little bit borderline when it comes to uh, to obviously making the college football playoff. They need some things to go right for it to happen. But this is a bitter rivalry game. Obviously, you know, two states, uh, the Commonwealth Cup, I believe it's called, uh, a game that's been played for a long time, a, a game that has a lot of stakes in that state of Kentucky. And uh, by the way, a game that maybe has a little bit more importance in a world where Louisville basketball might not be doing all that well. Anyway, Louisville has not won a game against uh, in this rivalry since 2017. It's been a hot minute. I believe that that was Lamar Jackson's last one at Louisville was 2017. So it's been a while. Jeff Brom has taken over this Louisville program and done a fantastic job. Uh, Odds wise, I'd be curious what the line actually is. I don't think it would necessarily be a huge betting upset if Kentucky were to win this game. But I I think that uh, it's going to be a really competitive one. And the thing that you have to say about it, too, is not just what will it mean for Louisville if they were to lose this game. What does it mean for Florida State and their resume if Louisville were to, to lose this game as well? Um, I'm going to take Louisville whenever we get to the game. I think that they're going to win it. But I think it is an upset that could shake up a lot of the ACC's race. I love that you picked the Kentucky game because I actually debated about picking it. And then I'm like, you know what? I'm not even going to get to the Kentucky game. I'm going to actually look at the game before that. And Louisville's game this weekend at Miami was actually one of my top five potential upset games because I was just thinking about FSU, you know, because let's hell, you know, I'll, I'll borrow from the, the college football playoff committee. You know, um, that's a tough rivalry between Miami and FSU. And Miami gave Florida State a bit of a challenge. So I. Miami can certainly play defense. Say what you can. Their weak spot certainly at this season has been the, the disappointment with the quarterback. But they're good against the rush. That's a big problem for Louisville because that's their bread and butter. We're going to see a real nice competition between um, Juar Jackson and, and against that, that Miami defense. Um, their top 10 in sacks, 20th in total defense. 
and Miami can can run the ball fairly well. So there's a lot of elements there that this weekend, I'm very curious to see if this is going to be the game where uh, Mario Cristobal starts to get a big signature win for the Canes. Because I think the Hurricanes are gradually improving. Um, again, last weekend's game, yes, they lost to Florida State. There were no moral victories. But again, it seems like the program is on the right track, just not necessarily as fast as some people thought it would go. So I could see this being a situation where in these final games of the regular season, suddenly Miami gets their signature win against a top 10 Louisville team. And that would be that would be an interesting moment. That said, I also acknowledge Miami this season in particular seems to be cursed in some way. I don't know what they did or who did what to whom. But after that Georgia Tech game, I honestly, I, I, that's the that's the the reason I'm not sure this is necessarily going to be an upset. Miami is still kind of clutzily kind of falling its way into what it's doing. And again, that quarterback plays weak enough that I am genuinely concerned about whether or not they can do it. But it is funny that you said the Kentucky game because the Miami game. And it, so I love that we're, we're, we're just absolutely piling on Louisville just out of the gate because they, <laughs> and again, yeah. as, as we said at the outset, I mean, Florida state needs them to win these games. And likewise, you know, Louisville with any shot needs Florida state to keep winning their game. So this has got to be, um, it's going to be funny to see how, People react to that game on on social media or on Reddit. Just watching if if, if Miami starts getting lead on Louisville, I can imagine we're going to start to see a lot of Knowles fans starting to pipe in. Like, come on, come on, Cardinals, we need this. Please show some life. We'll, we'll hey, we can we can sneak in Keon Coleman or someone. Just just play. You know, I, I don't know, but <laughs> I think that's a great one. No, and I want to mention too. You know, you mentioned on the defensive side of the ball, Lance Guidry. I think has been one of the biggest additions of the offseason. Defensive coordinator over there. He came over from Marshall. Has really revamped what they're doing. Uh, they actually, I think, made two really smart coordinator hires, Shannon Dawson on offense too. Uh, and and it's been. I mean, it's largely been working. It like. For the most part, I think that this team has been playing well. I think that the coaches have been doing a pretty good job. Like you said, they've just been snake bit in some close games. Some of that stuff is game management stuff that falls on the shoulders of Mario Cristobal. But it's it's going to be a good challenge for them, I think. Uh, but yeah, obviously, you know, we picked both of Louisville's last two games. Uh, clearly, we think that they could have some issues down the stretch. But uh, what would your next game be? You know, I I'm going more recent. And I. And part of me worries, am I buying into a trendy pick here? But Texas's game this weekend at Iowa State, there's so many things there that seem less tangible, but also tangible. I mean, let's go through the, the facts. I mean, we, we've seen how Texas has performed in the second half of the season since the Red River rivalry. They've had trouble finishing games with Houston, K-State, and just most recently, they almost let TCU have a comeback into the game. There's the whole side story going into this season of the hype of the so-called hateful eight, the teams that were part of the Big 12 that are going to remain there and with the new Big Big 12 friends that just joined. You know, and, and there's bulletin board material that's being produced, by the way. I mean, one of the guards of Iowa State, you know, Jared Hufford, he, he's like, it's going to be one heck of a farewell present. They're going to come in here on senior night in the dark. I don't think they really know what's going to be coming for them. We've beaten them four out of the last five times at home. They don't have a good record here. I mean, we're we're at the stage where they're 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 throwing bullboard material at the Longhorns. And again, so I mean, and that is somewhat of a pro. It's going to be in Ames. I have to caution that it isn't that cold right now in the upper Midwest. I live a little further north. I live here in Minnesota. It's 60 degrees outside, which is absolutely nuts. But I, I looked it up. It's going to be roughly around kickoff time, about 40 degrees and clear in Ames. It's actually not bad. That still falls in the decent fall football weather in my mind. That's not going to be like ice cold. That's going to be, you know, if you run hot, it'll be nice for you. And if you're, you know, really hot, you can wear like a jacket or something, you know. Um, and to be fair, Iowa's freshman quarterback, Rocco Beck, has been he's looked not bad. He came off of a pretty strong showing against BYU. I, what I was struck was he's actually currently only one touchdown shy of Brock Purdy's freshman, probably freshman, <laughs> freshman season over at Iowa. So again, another factor, Texas is obviously now without Jonathan Brooks. And some people say they're just going to, you know, they obviously have some great talent behind him. But at the same time, they were already struggling a little bit with scoring in red zone situations. So this will add to that. Iowa State has that strong secondary led by TJ Tampa. Uh, you know, they're they're able to 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 reduce the passing game efficiency. And Quinn Ewers is good. It's great to see him back. He seems to be healthy. So that will be an interesting matchup to see as well. But again, we'll, 
it is Iowa State, so the talent differential is is a big factor in all of this. Can I mean I've just said you know great secondary, but can they handle Xavier Worthy, Adonai Mitchell? Can they handle the passing game with Quinn? Now, if if we we're still talking Malik Murphy, I'd be a little bit more favorable of, of how that secondary is going to perform. And also, they just haven't been able to create as much pressure. I mean, I was despite the fact of having a reputation of a good defense, they're 106 in sacks right now, which which struck me looking at the Cyclones. But that said. Weird things happen in Ames late in the season. Championship hopes go to die. So I went with Iowa State. So I debated between both of Texas remaining Big 12 games, and I also went with Iowa State this upcoming week. So the thing, and they were actually also number four on my list. So the thing that I'll say about Iowa State, and the reason that I kind of don't think they're actually going to be able to win the game their offensive line is, is very bad. They rank 117th in both passing and rushing blocking grade uh, per PFF. And Texas is one of the best rush defenses in the entire country. They've got two defensive tackles, Byron Murphy and, uh, and Tavondre Sweat, who are just absolute monsters. Like They actually rank uh, number one and number two in PFF grade among interior defensive players. So that's really concerning. But if... If they can handle themselves all right, I kind of like Iowa State everywhere else in this game. You know, you, Rocco Beck, like you mentioned, after they lost to Ohio in week three, which, by the way, is a thing that happened, uh, they moved to a much pass happier system. And they've let Rocco Beck cook in a lot of ways. They've sped things up. They've spread things out. They've stopped being so pro style. One of the big uh, changes of this offseason was they let go of their former offensive coordinator and and promoted uh, Nate Shieldhouse, the former, uh, what, what is it, Illinois running back, right? I think it is, or quarterback. I can't, I, I think it might be quarterback. Quarterback, quarterback. Uh, yes. And and he's running the, uh, the, the offense now. And so... He's done, I think, a really nice job of making the game just a little bit easier, especially with an, an inexperienced quarterback. And the last couple of weeks, they've also started to come along in the running game. Uh, they've got a freshman, Abu Salma, who they love. He was one of the most dynamic players in the state of Iowa. They thought that maybe he'd play defense, but he's just too good with the ball in his hands. He had his first 100-yard game last week. So I, I like what they have there. I think they've got some nice receivers defensively. Like you said, they don't get all the way to the quarterback, but they provide a lot of pressure. They cover at a high level. John Haycock runs that three three five defense. And by the way, he is one of the most underrated defensive minds in all of college football. And for Texas, like things weren't very clean last week offensively. And now you lose Jonathan Brooks, who I would argue has been their best offensive player through the first couple games of the year. He was giving them more than 150 all-purpose yards per game. I, I kind of worry about this team if they're not going to be able to run the ball with consistency. Now, again, I think Texas is going to be able to win this game. But Iowa State is going to give them a scare. And obviously, you, you mentioned, I mean, this is the most talented Texas team that we've seen since 2009. There's no question about it. Uh, and, and they've proven it multiple times. But it's true. Iowa State has won four of these last five games. And the last time they played in Ames, they won 30 to 7, by the way, in a game that an Iowa State player bet on Texas to win. But oh, that's man. a whole other conversation. Well, you know, this this brings up this brings up one of the, the the ways that it's been kind of hard to read Iowa State. The first three games, they were actually just trying to figure out how to win with the personnel they had because they lost right. so many key players with the gambling scandal. So one thing Matt Campbell went from being like when they opened two and three and you're kind of like oh have they lost their luster i mean gambling aside and then have gone you know four and one since then um it, it's a striking thing so uh that's why they're also hard to read and that's why i think i'm, I'm willing to give them a bit of a chance because it seems like they're getting a sense of who they are and, and how they can win and the games at home and by the way this is a must-win game not just for the playoff for texas if iowa state were to win this game they would come into a tie for first place in the Big 12 with Texas, with Oklahoma, with Kansas State, with Oklahoma State. And if I'm Texas, the last thing that I want is to be in a situation where I've got to rely on some tiebreakers breaking my way to have a chance to make it to the Big 12 championship game. So, again, Texas, I would advise you not to lose this game. You know, for, for pure chaos purposes, and I know I think it was Max Olsen at the Athletic that, that worked out the equation, but if all the Big 12 home teams win this weekend, we're going to have an eight-way tie for first place in the Big 12, <laughs> which, I mean, 
Uh, don't get me wrong. I do love the playoffs, but I also love chaos. And that would be spectacular way for the conference to just completely. I mean, it's great. It's like three stooges all trying to run into a doorway and getting jammed. It's like the, the door jam problem. You're going to get a whole bunch of teams stuck and they're going to have to figure out how to sort it out in the Big 12. I know they're now like redefining how the tiebreaker works. Um, or pardon me, quote unquote, clarifying. They're basically saying like, oh, we didn't think <laughs> this out. We knew we had 14 teams for this one season. Well, we'll just kind of wing it. And it, it turns out it might actually be a real problem, especially if, if eight of the teams are tied. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Well, that was my next one. Who? And by the way, I just have to say Texas Tech was also on my my agenda as well, only because it's it's everyone wants to take out Texas on their way out. So Texas Tech hasn't been quite where we thought they were going to be. But I thought Iowa State had a slightly better chance because it's at their house. But who did you have next as a potential ride? Apparently, a potential upset. Yeah. So so far on my list, I've got Louisville, Kentucky at five. I've got Texas, Iowa State at number four. So at number three, I'm going to go with Georgia, Tennessee. And this isn't again. This is a game that is more, I think, about whether Georgia stays focused than it is about whether Tennessee can hang with Georgia. I don't think that Tennessee can hang with Georgia, but it's on the road. It's going to be a big emotional game, a 2.30 p.m. CBS game in Central Time. Uh, you know, one of the last ones that they're going to get to play in. I expect it to be a great atmosphere. And the thing is, like, Tennessee has struggled a bit offensively. Their defense has been surprisingly good. They have been able to, to stay in games on the back of their defense. And also, if you're Georgia right now, it's easy to overlook this Tennessee team because of what happened last week against Missouri. It was a 36-7 to loss for, for Tennessee. I also, by the way, wouldn't be shocked to see a little bit Nico Iamaliaiva uh, at quarterback for them. You know, the former uh, number one quarterback recruit coming out of school. And so, I don't know. I, I just feel like if you're Josh Heupel, if you lose this game, then you're an eight and four team. And I don't think anybody's feeling very good about that. If you win this game, you are a promising nine and three. So any, any darts you have to throw, any, any landmines you can drop, this is the time to do it. And again, I think that George is going to be able to handle them without too much issue, but I, I just think that it could get a little squirrely, especially by the way, after Georgia's gone through and had to be so focused to beat Missouri and then to beat Ole Miss last week. Yeah, I was, this is one of the games that I, I kind of had on the back burner of, of potential upsets, but I still kind of sat down and thought it through. If that defense, which as you said, is solid. And I mean, in total sacks are actually slightly ahead of, of Alabama, which, which kind of struck me when I was looking at those numbers, but can they, can they force Georgia into situations where they have to settle on field goals? Can they get a few turnovers? Because we know those are the classic ways that upsets start to happen. I mean, it's in Neyland. If they can keep it close by that third quarter, especially, I think we'll start to see a lot of a lot of hype kind of generating in that stadium. And we know that stadium, they're willing to to throw artillery if they need to, to, to make themselves make themselves known. And I mean, hey, we have the power of Dolly Parton. Apparently Dolly Parton's gonna be the audience. If Tennessee pulls this off, <laughs> wow, that's a, I can't ooh, I, I can't even I, imagine. Yeah, I mean, so <laughs> what? Just watch. We're gonna see her on the sideline calling plays. No, but I <laughs> just you wait. It's gonna it's gonna become a defensive battle, and Tennessee's gonna win nine to five. Oh my goodness! <laughs> oh, oh! If only she were an Iowa fan. Oh my gosh! You know. <laughs> but I mean, I, I I acknowledge. Can Joe Milton step up? I mean, he's just not quite been where they want him. And it's understandable. He can get there eventually. But And also the defense against the run game has been a little suspect. Last week, we just saw Cody Schrader run all up and down them. And Georgia's got a couple of good running backs as well. So with Kendall Milton and Dejon Edwards, they may have themselves a day. But things happen. It's the SEC. It's in Neyland. I think it's possible. But I think that's, that's, certainly, um, that's certainly one of those. So those are some of our initial upset potential games as we head into the end of the regular season. Next, we'll run down a few more as we wrap up another edition of the College Football Survivor Show. The College Football Survivor Show, where playoff survival is always on the line. Okay, so we've gone through some interesting options here. 
You thought there is some potential, I'm not, we're not in any way guaranteeing these, that Georgia might have a loss at number 18 Tennessee this weekend. Now, I'm thinking my next potential upset was Washington's game at Oregon State. It's almost to the point where Oregon State, they're number 11. They've had some incredible wins. That Wazoo loss seems so odd right now. The longer time has gone on. But Oregon State seems to be coming in their own. And with Washington going into Reeser, which is not an easy place to play. Some of my favorite games I've ever seen have been played at Reeser. Um, In some cases, they were Beaver upsets. In some cases, my favorite game I ever saw there, by the way, it was so foggy, they couldn't see where the ball was going in the telecast. Literally, the ball would get thrown in the air, and they're like, uh, they were <laughs> when you hear the, the play-by-play guy kind of pause and, and kind of see how the players are reacting on the field to understand where it ended up. I mean, it's it's a wacky place. Things are interesting there, but it is kind of an odd one because technically it would be an upset, but there's still almost a team just outside of the top 10. And the Beavers in that way are the most talented, pure spoiler program because I realistically, they have no shot of getting into the college football playoff themselves. They can just ultimately wreck the hopes and dreams of all those teams that are departing the Pac-12 this season. And, you know, historically, I always think back to 1967, the classic giant killers where the Beavers managed to knock off number two Purdue, tie number two UCLA, and beat the number one consensus champ USC um, to finish 7-2-1. and And they didn't go to a bowl because in those days, the Pac-12 only, the Pac-10, Pac-8, I think it was technically the American Association of Western Universities, only would send one team into a bowl game. Um, So (laughs) they didn't get to go bowling that year. But all that said, the Beavs can run the ball. They have good rush efficiency. They've got some talented backs with Martinez and Fenwick. And DJ can run himself. They can rush the quarterback. That's another big thing. They can force potential mistakes. And we've seen Penix can have games where he's fallible. I mean, obviously, the committee really loves to look back at that Arizona State game, but we've seen that he can get rattled a little bit and not necessarily have a great day on the field. The Beavs are fourth in sacks. Washington can struggle with interior pressure. There's a lot of things here that could set up a situation where Washington is forced to see if they can get their running game working like they did against USC. Now, the weak spot, the Beavs secondary is not their strongest suit. They've allowed 240 yards per game. Odunze and company are probably going to feast on that defense if they can if they can protect Penix long enough. Um, so I'm, but I, at the same time, it feels like I, I almost wonder why we didn't have them earlier. But uh, part of me is like, and I'd be curious to know where you where you thought or if you thought this was a potential upset game because in my mind you almost have to mention both of Oregon State's next two games because they have the potential way to spoil Washington and Oregon heading into the, the end of this regular season. Yeah, so I only wanted to put one of the two Oregon State games on my list, and so I did put Oregon as my choice on the list. One interesting point on Washington, Oregon State is actually a betting favorite right now. They are minus two per the sports line consensus, so, which I think makes a lot of sense. Now, the thing that I think that this is like such an upset spot that maybe it's just like a real focus spot. Like it's not a trap. There's no trap to Washington playing Oregon State at this point. Um, You know, they close the year with Washington State, certainly a game that they need to be on their toes about. You know, you don't want to mess up against your rival in, in what might be the final one for a while. But certainly Oregon State is a much better team than Washington State is, especially at this point in the year. And so... Uh, You mentioned, obviously, they're really, really good at getting to the quarterback. They do a great job getting interior pressure. They're good against the run. I think Washington's going to be able to quick game them to death, though. I I think that they're going to be able to. And I think that they're also going to be able to cause some issues uh, for uh, for DJ Uyengalele as well, Oregon State's quarterback. And and Oregon State is a complete team, like a, a truly complete team. They do everything well. They've got a great offensive line. They obviously have some good receivers, great running backs. Uh, DJ's been a great player for them at quarterback. But that's actually one of the reasons why I think that people are overlooking Oregon State's chances against Oregon. Because we see Washington and see a fallible team. I actually think that uh, that Oregon State is maybe even better built to beat this Oregon team than it is to beat that Washington team. So obviously, look, 
you look at Oregon right now, I mean, they are playing at an insane level right this second. I mean, a, a 36 to 27 win last week, a 35 to win, uh, 35 to six win over Utah, uh, competing with Washington on the road the way that they did. I, I mean, when they are rolling, they are rolling. But what it's going to come down to for uh, for Oregon State, you mentioned obviously the the pressure rate that Oregon State's defensive line is able to create. Bo Nix has been essentially untouched all year. He has not had any pressure basically all year long. It's funny watching Bo Nix play because you look at the end of the game and his numbers are insane, but he makes the game look so easy because of how well he executes that offense. Here's the question. How well does he, how efficient is he, I guess, when he isn't just able to run the offense, when he isn't just able to, I, I don't want to use game manager as like a pejorative here, but like when he's not just able to have the offense flow through him and he has to go out and he has to make a play, I think he's going to have to do that against this Oregon State defense, uh, which is obviously, again, really physical, really aggressive. I think that they're going to be able to hang physicality-wise with Oregon. And on the other side of the ball, I think they're really going to be able to, to attack Oregon's defense physically as well. I mean, again, a really, really diverse running team uh, that's able to do it not just with their running backs, but also with DJ at quarterback. Uh, they're able to get guys on the move. They're able to get DJ out of the pocket. Like, I, I just think that this one is going to be a chess match, like a true, true chess match, just because of the quality of both of these staffs. And uh, we saw it happen last year. Oregon State was able to come away with a win last year. I don't think they're going to waste their opportunity to do it for the final time against their rivals. So I had them number two on my list. That's that I can see that. I think I was more hesitant that can lightning strike twice in that particular rivalry because Oregon's going to go into that game regardless of how I think the season went with minds on revenge. So I'm not sure they're going to be, they're going to let him pass, but it could happen. I mean, and quite frankly, oh gosh, yeah, the wheels totally fell off Wazoo. So yeah, I, I, I don't consider them a threat. We kind of, we, we <laughs> unfortunately touched on unfortunately. them and I'm like, no, no, especially because again, it's going to be an Autzen. And that is a, a heck of an environment. I The one time I went there, I was totally blown away by how loud that place gets, um, which you hear. But it's it's one thing to hear that in passing and then you actually go. It reminds me of the time I went to an Ohio State game and my ears were literally ringing at halftime. Um, and then you're like, oh, because, hey, I went to USC. We're not known for being the loudest fans. We're known for being <laughs> quite mellow. It's the L.A. vibe. The weather's so nice. I mean, like, eh. You know, woo, so yeah, woo, yeah, irony, you know, but <laughs> you mentioned, you mentioned, right? So obviously, you know, the question is, can lightning strike twice? I would posit that Oregon State might just be as good as Oregon this time, right? So they've mm -hmm. won two of the last three. The one thing that you have to mention, though, is that their last time winning in Eugene was after Dennis Dixon's injury uh, in 2007. So it's been... It's been 15 years, 15 plus yeah, years, I guess, at this point, since they've <laughs> gone and won on the road. Uh, but, you know, you look even back at the 2021 game in Eugene, it was 38 to 29. Like it, it wasn't an Oregon blowout by any means. Jonathan Smith has built something pretty sustainable here. So, again, now, now the one thing that I will say, too, is that I don't know if Jonathan Smith is a like rally the troops kind of coach you know if he's like a you got one shot you know like uh you know sort of getting all big up and crazy motivation i i don't know if that's his vibe so much so maybe they don't play with that kind of edge i i don't know but again man oregon state has one more shot at this and uh i i think that they're going to at minimum be ready for the game and by the way too it wouldn't shock me as well because if oregon wins that game i think that we're setting up a washington oregon Pac-12 title game. I think that's pretty much set in stone mm -hmm. if they win that game. I mean, so, I, I don't think that you can discount the possibility that uh, that Oregon State playing Oregon super physical, super close, also is one of those types of games that leaves Oregon just absolutely gassed for the Pac-12 title game as well, and potentially even has an impact on the playoff in that way. Oh, absolutely. And I mean, it's I believe it because it ends up being a short week as well because the Pac-12 title game is on a Friday. Uh, not that much of a short week, but still a little shorter than it would be, at least for, for getting shorter than up. you'd like. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so my next upset, and this is kind of rounding up my top five, because I, I included both of the Oregon State games, yes, was yes. the possibility that Florida might be able to take That's out my number Florida one State as well in the in the rivalry game. Because first of all, rivalry weirdness. I think Billy Napier is coaching for not 
I don't think he's going to be fired or anything like that. I mean, especially knowing that Texas A&M is on the market and, and potentially other 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 uh, dominoes may fall. I think if he's if anything goes bad for him, it'll go mid season next season. I think that's going to be the make or break is how he does in the first half of next season. But that said, you know. They just saw how well Miami was able to keep it close with Florida State. They know they have enough of a talent pool there to be able to pull off a a victory. But I acknowledge the defense right now for the Gators ain't great. The offense for Florida State is phenomenal. Um, Florida has certainly had trouble getting up for the most talented opponents that they've played. They've lost decisively to Georgia LSU. They opened with that loss to Utah. But hey, you know, uh, they beat Tennessee, although I don't know how much of that was just the voodoo of playing in Ben Hill Griffin Stadium. I know a lot of the Vols fans just feel, you know, almost PTSD every time they play there because it never seems to go well for them. Um, but I'm curious to see how that goes. I mean, we'll assume that Florida State will slay the North Alabama Lions with little difficulty. But, uh, you know, they, they learned from the folks at Alabama doing the classic SEC SOCON challenge. But I think this I, I'm, I'm wondering if this is going to be an opportunity for the Gators to s- just surprise the Knowles at a point where perhaps they feel almost because at this point they're they're going to the ACC title game. This they might be looking ahead to playing their way into the because that, that, I wonder if there's a lot of that stress in the background for the whole program at FSU because they've been ranked number four for a while. We've been talking a little bit about, hey, why isn't Washington being ranked ahead of them? If Louisville falls at any point, that's only going to make them look worse, at least in terms of overall resume. So they know they're under a lot of pressure to to stay at the level they need to be. And I could see them because of Florida's kind of mediocre season and I would argue terrible for who they have and what they have available to them. I could see them potentially overlooking the Gators and giving again, the home team Florida an opportunity to, to send them out with a loss. So I wrote a story today on CBSports.com. Florida lost a third top two, four, seven commitments on Monday. Uh, Nasir Johnson ended up flipping from Florida to Georgia it dropped Florida from number three in the country to number five in the 247 rankings. Uh, and that might not be the end of it if things keep going this way. If they lose this game against Florida State, Florida could, could could potentially miss a bowl game. Like that is where we're at right now with Florida after making one last year. And so Billy Napier needs something heading into the offseason to hang his hat on. And this is a huge opportunity. This is that kind of game where if you beat Florida State, potentially knock them out of the playoff uh, and have bragging rights against your rival, I I mean, that's it, right? That's exactly what you need if you're Billy Napier at this point. Like you said, he's not going to be fired this offseason. There's no way. There's no chance. But if you head into an offseason without a bowl game, without the possibility of building any momentum for the 2024 season, then you are entering 2024 firmly on the hot seat with the possibility of being fired after next season. Now, again, I I think Billy Napier is a really good coach. Obviously, we've watched him since he was at Louisiana. He built a fantastic operation. It hasn't really hit the same way at Florida. A lot of that has to do with quarterback issues uh, and offensive line issues and attrition and all this sort of stuff. But if you're Florida, uh, you better be ready for that Florida State game because this is an opportunity to rewrite your own destiny. And if you're Florida State, you better be focused because, like you said, uh, only North Alabama the week before, potentially looking forward to the the ACC title game. You know, maybe you're looking at Louisville, maybe you're looking at North Carolina. Don't overlook this game because this could be a game that makes or breaks whether Florida State does make the college football playoff. Absolutely, and I think those are all realistic. I mean, the most realistic options for upsets right now. Because we, 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 there were some others. We actually talked a little bit about potential conference title games. Typically, aren't upsets unless you're in the ACC or Big Twelve, in which case, if Texas uh, manages to get to the Big Twelve title game, whoever they play will be uh, upset potential for them. Um, ACC, if even if it ends up Louisville versus FSU, poor Louisville, they'll still probably be ranked like ten or something. Um, you know, as they go into that, but. Yeah, there are other ones out there. I mean, Auburn was at the I, I debated about Auburn. Crazy things happened in Jordan Hare. You know, they put a scare into Georgia, but for Brock Bowers, you know, when they played uh, that particular game. Although I just don't think necessarily Hugh Freeze has a team where it's ready to compete with Bama. So I expect Bama to roll there. Um, 
Oregon is going to Arizona State, and they love to talk about how those Northwest teams struggle in the desert. I just don't think it's this year. I think Arizona State, Arizona State, and Arizona, Arizona State doesn't look terrible considering all the things that happened to them, losing their quarterback so early on and, and running teams close. But I think maybe they expended their energy and their their voodoo ability against Washington in that game where they nearly upset. The Huskies. So I think the Ducks are going to be focused, and Dan Lanning is doing a great job of keeping the Ducks focused enough. So that Oregon State game, I agree, is one of the ones where I think if they're going to fall, it's going to be there. But it is fascinating to note that, you know, <laughs> neither of us have any faith in Maryland or Minnesota upsetting the two Big Ten champs, <laughs> the, the likely <laughs> Big Ten champs heading into uh, their final game and the final. I hate calling it the game. I actually hate calling it the game because I am a purist. And the game is Harvard-Yale. I'm not saying we're ever going to talk about Harvard-Yale on this show. But I mean, and the reason it's called the game is because they based it off of Oxford-Cambridge, the boat race. That's what they call the oldest intercollegiate competition of any note, where they go into the Thames and the two boat clubs, you know, do rowing, which is even more bougie than, than you'd expect. And, you know, a bunch of financiers and probably royals sit sipping tea and watching people row boats. But it's the boat race and we have the game. And, you know, and then... Therefore, when it got on the West Coast with the two fancy schools there, the big game. I mean, that you can kind of see these evolutions. Like the, the whole concept of bowl, the name of a bowl came from Yale, the Yale Bowl. And then the Rose Bowl named themselves after the Yale Bowl. And then everyone calls out their bowls because the Rose Bowl became famous for postseason games. I love these kinds of like historical connections. And um, <laughs> Shayan is looking at me while I'm doing all these no, weird I, hand gestures. I, like, no, no, you know, no. Voodoo. I love it. <laughs> <laughs> I, I mean, I, I feel like uh, I feel like, though, I mean, like Harvard, Yale can't be the game. Uh, Ohio State owns the word the. So, like, how could that be the game? <laughs> so they're a game. <laughs> a game. I don't yeah. know, though. If, if it gets into push and shove versus lawyers, I, oh. I'm giving Harvard's team an opportunity. I oh, mean, man. Be like that the is end, the rivalry like, we need. That is yeah. the game versus the game lawyers. Oh, that is that oh, is the goodness. matchup that we need to see. With a, with a caliber of lawyers at Harvard and Yale, the judge will probably actually rule that somehow, you know, Ohio State is property of those universities if you actually <laughs> look at it. Reminds me of that, that classic version of The Simpsons where um, I think Bart's trying to be adopted and they try to fight him. And somehow with Mr. Burns' level of attorneys, it's like they establish that Bart's actually his biological son in court. <laughs> so you know, don't, don't underestimate the power of expensive, uh, expensive lawyer fees. But um <laughs> Oh goodness! Well, that that's a, that's a nice light way to wrap this up. But I, you know, before we tie this up, question time. I did it last week. What what's your question for for the two of us and that we'd like us to kind of go into? Yeah, I mean, I had one idea, but I actually want to. Uh, I, I think this is a perfect jumping off point. What rivalry outside of one involving your team is your favorite in college football? Oh, wow. This is a great one. And I mean, it's so funny, too, because I've fallen in love with so many of the smaller t school rivalries. I've, I've covered a few of them, like even in you know small division three schools where, where teams will like walk down the street afterwards and and do something, you know, some tradition. Gosh. Oh, I have a soft spot for Cal and Stanford only because of the of the play. I mean, we're talking about things that have singular names, right? The play. I mean, that to me made absolute wackiness, but it's such a tough call. That is one of the toughest calls, I think toughest questions you can give because what makes college football so enjoyable is the sheer silliness of these rivalries and the very nature of them. I mean, the fact that you can have schools that are across the country from each other be serious rivals. The fact that, you know, Caltech, which doesn't play football anymore, and MIT have a rivalry where they will steal cannons from each other's campuses and with their alumni pour tons of money into getting like a semi to actually haul the cannon across the country. I mean, there, there's so much wackiness with the I mean, the SEC always kind of breaks barriers on how insane and crazy you can act towards your rival. But yeah, I don't know. I think maybe it's because I have a soft spot for the play, but I, I don't feel very strong on that answer. I'd love to know yours. Yeah, it's a great question. So obviously, you got to give a shout out to Brawl of the Wilds, Montana, Montana State. I think that that's a fantastic rivalry with a fantastic name. Uh, I can, I'm going to give whatever the opposite of a shout out is to the Blue Bonnet Battle, the new name for Baylor TCU that people are very unhappy about. Uh, <laughs> I, I do love the name Revivalry for that rivalry. Like that's mm -hmm. just such a. I think that's anyway. That, that's a whole conversation for another day. Uh, 
But my favorite, I think I have to say at this point, is the Egg Bowl. And the reason for that is I think that they're, at my core, I've, I've made this point multiple times, college football is about going to work on Monday and talking crap to your neighbor. That, that is all it's about. It is not about anything else. You can, Whatever. Oh, my team won a national championship. Who cares? I want to go into work on Monday and be able to talk crap. And Ole Miss, Mississippi State is a battle of two teams that will never win a national championship, that will never really play for anything relevant. So what they have is the Egg Bowl. If you lose that game, it's it's 364 days until the next one of these things. And you can't do anything to make it better. And I just love it. I love the amount of hate that's in it. I love the way that it's impacted college football. It is just a tremendous rivalry game. Absolutely. And, you know, it's so funny, too. I The pettiness of it, the fact that I love that when they try to figure out the butterfly effect of the infamous, you know, dog pee incident at um, who was the player who did that? Oh, it was uh, Elijah Moore who ended up becoming That's a great it, player Moore. for them. Yeah, no, I mean, but all the coaching shifts that seem to have been traced to that one incident. And that's why the Egg Bowl forever will have. I mean, it is it it has national impact and all its silliness. But it's just it's crazy. Every time you think of the top schools, the top the top rivalries, there's just it it never ends. And that's what we love about this sport. You know, I just want to take a second to thank all of you out there for listening to us here on the College Football Survivor Show. We always enjoy having you all participate on our Twitter or X account at CFB Survivor Show, where you can vote and message us your thoughts. Be sure wherever you get your, your podcast, wherever you're listening to this, to like, rate, and subscribe. Write a review. We love seeing it. I always get curious how people spell my name. I've read it in many different ways. Um, and I'd like to thank our producer, Joey Alberti, for helping us sound the best we can. I'm Bob Akairi. He's Shehan Jayaraja. You can find his work at cbssports.com and we'll talk to you next week the college football survivor show where playoff survival is always on the line